Well, hello again, guys, and welcome to the Living with Power podcast. I'm your host. My name is Lena Abu Jamra, and I am so pumped you're here. Uh, we meet every week and we talk about hope because we believe in hope. Here on this podcast, we love hope, the idea that people can change. Uh, we interview people who believe that hope is where it's happening. And every week, I try to highlight an aspect of hope and a person who has really tasted what it means to hope in the midst of difficult circumstances. And so uh, today's guest is going to do the same as we've done before, but her story is unique. And uh, Lena Callantine is a friend of mine. She's actually a colleague as well. She's a fellow pediatrician. I want to tell you a little bit about her before I bring her into the conversation. Uh, I'm actually keeping remember when we met we'll have to talk about that uh here soon but i uh, found out that there was another crazy pediatrician who is serving the lord in full-time ministry she actually founded sci experience which makes her a whole lot smarter than i am her purpose in founding it was to magnify the wonders of god's creation through teaching and hands-on experience so she set off on this alternate medical career where she taught science and, and started homeschooling her kids and, and going around to homeschooling meetings talking about science. She's going to tell us more about what God did in that and through that. And now in the last uh, few years, her work has started to focus more on racial reconciliation in the church. God has burdened her towards racial reconciliation and she has experienced some highs and some lows as she's navigated the world of ministry. Uh, she and I have been talking a little bit about uh, the role of women in the church and outside of the church. And so it is going to be an amazing podcast. We're going to hit up some controversial topics. Uh, I also want to talk to her about why everybody should vaccinate their kids. And I know some of you are like, what? I'm getting off this thing right now. Don't. You need to stay. We're not going to brainwash you. We're just going to talk about uh, real life and real questions. And so, Lena, it is so good to have you. Oh, it's so good to finally catch up with you, Lena. Right? I mean, you're, I don't know if you're the hardest person to pin down schedule wise or I am, but you. it took us a while to set this thing up. <laughs> oh, what are you up to these days? Oh, well, I'm busy, you know, being a mom and just living the dream right now. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I mean, I, I, you're one of those high powered women, and I, I do want to sort of lean into this question. It seems like an easy question, but it's not. You are up to a lot. And one of the things that I saw, of course, we kind of been catching up here, you and I, before we started recording, you're actually applying for seminary. So, but before we get to that, I mean, you live in Chicago, right? Some easy questions here. I, yeah, I got this one. Yes, I live oh. in the Chicago area. <laughs> you live in the Chicago area and you've been here since medical school or, or is this like, tell us a bit about like your, your more, your career path. You started practicing medicine or did you transition into the sci experience right away? Yeah, it's like a crazy story. Um, I guess just to put the short of it, I actually am from the East Coast and I was a, uh, a basketball player and basketball, I was pretty good in the day and heavily recruited for basketball. And also wanted to pursue medicine. And so um, I actually came to Chicago to Northwestern on a full athletic scholarship uh, to play. Get out. Huh? Yeah. I thought I knew everything about you. Yeah, see, I just dropped that one just in there like that. That's awesome. So that's pretty crazy. So, so you played basketball at Northwestern. Yeah. And I, and I, um, it, it was, that was a challenge in itself, difficulty. But um, so I, I studied education and knew I wanted to be a doctor but didn't feel uh, truly, didn't, wasn't sure that I was capable of being a doctor. You know, kind of self-doubt of, am I smart enough? Is this, it was something I always wanted to be. So after I finished at Northwestern, I actually went back home. Um, I needed a job. Yeah. And I kind of, you know, I like kid at an ice cream store, like I got this much money. What can I buy for this? And well, I went home and looked for a job and knew I wanted to work for kids, work with kids. And so I was offered a teaching job. And so in order to teach in a public school, I also um, entered a master's program in education and taught fifth grade in college. Hmm. And so after I did a couple of years of that, um, knew I wanted to pursue med school and got accepted to med school in, at University of Illinois at Chicago and came back to the Chicago area where I never left. Wow. So this is fascinating. So you never lost the bug. You sort of stayed focused. You knew that this was a temporary thing, the teaching, or was it more like you started doing it and then just felt a stirring to go back into medicine? No, I, I actually wasn't sure. And my parents were very supportive of me. Their attitude, it's, it's no, if you don't try. So 
Mm. you have to lose in in pursuing your dreams and so and so what what you're now you are African American mm-hmm. and what city did you grow up in I grew up in a lot of cities so my family moved a lot when I was growing up uh, what did your parents do my my mom was a stay at home and my dad worked for Sun Oil Company and so he was a manager and so his job took us around the Midwest and ended up east where the headquarters was there so I was did you think about playing pro, like WNBA? Well, was that something that was around? I played semi-pro, but I'm in the era where it wasn't there yet. So during the 80s, I'm dating myself, um, women's basketball was starting to become more of a heyday. But at that time, many people would go over to Europe. That's where uh, women could get their opportunities. And probably about four years before the uh, WNBA kind of got you know, established. So I played a little semi-pro while I was in medical school, but it just became too much. I did exhibition teams. Wow. Like the Globetrotters? Yeah. Well, the exhibition is, you know, it's kind of funny. They're the teams that come in and help get the uh, college teams tuned up. You know, you lose by and stuff like that. You know, it's real fun. Um, So um, I did one of those types of teams and, um, you know, it was hard to balance between medical school and, um, uh, now, did you? Where did you meet your husband? Uh, I met my husband and college, um, which was interesting. He's a he was a former football player, so there's a, no joke. So this is so cool because your son plays football. I never put together. He's yes. such an athletic family. Yes. So your where did your husband play at Northwestern? He played at Northwestern also. So that and where did he end up eventually with the uh, college? Well, was the end of his football career? Or did he go on? Well, he's a pretty smart dude, so he went on. Got his master's in Syracuse and worked for GE Aerospace. And uh, oh, he's he, a rocket scientist. Yeah, so well, well, uh, engineer. He's electrical engineers. But he came back to Chicago when I got into medical school, and that's when um, we got you got married. Yeah. And now, were both of you followers of Jesus at that time? Tell us a bit about your faith story leading up to that. It's it's a unique story. I'm not from a formal Christian family per se, or a family that really professed faith, really awesome family. But um, it wasn't until I left for college that I uh, um, professed uh, Christianity. And funny to go to secular college and find... And and play basketball, because you sort of like, what's the atmosphere like in college sports? Is it it a lot of debauchery, or is it really like intensely like fellowship of Christian athletes, or both? It depends on what you want. So... Right. You can decide where you want. So I got really involved in fellowship of Christian athletes and inner varsity. And I, wow. one thing about going to a secular college, the Christians really shine much brighter. I, hmm. you know, because there's no pretense that you have to act a certain way. So, right. Did your husband go? Was he a part of that? Too? Is that he how you was met? not. He was, he's from a Christian family. He was very agnostic. Actually, really? um, kind of teased me about my faith. <laughs> so. Um, it was an interesting thing, and it wasn't until we took a few years off after college that that's when he rededicated his life to Christ, and, and we got uh, back together. No joke. Now, he, just to, again, for, to help the listeners, because we are going to get into race a bit, is your husband white? He is I, white. I, I remember that. Yeah, he's, a little, he's okay. lacking a little myelin, but, you know. Can he can he dance? Uh, no, no but neither like- can I. I have- <laughs> well, that's too bad. Neither can I, so we're all in good company. And whatever genes that's supposed to be in me is is not there. That's awesome. So, so, so now you're walking in faith. You get married while you're in med school, right? Right. Our second year, my second year in medical school, we got married, and you became a pediatrician. I did. Uh, so, what was your thought at that point? Yeah, I mean, because uh, you really, I mean, you really have had a very alternative medical career. Um, did you want to practice, have an office, or was your dream to to be doing more ministry? Well, it was none of this stuff. So that's what's so amazing. So it took us six years in our marriage before we had our first kid, child, and we were actually told we couldn't have children. So we went through those years of infertility and just was trying to trust God on that. And so interesting enough, I got pregnant my, in, my um, intern year uh, residency. Oh, that's just yeah. perfect timing. Yeah, it was I'm sure your residency director was so thrilled. How, well, how did that go down? It got worse. I got pregnant three times while I was in residency. 
Oh my goodness. So, How long did it take you to finish your residency? Oh, I was, I had to stay six months after because one of them I lost, but my two sons I had during residency. Actually, that's a really impressive thing. Just to put people, listeners, if you don't know, the residency is three years. And so you really just went straight through. Basically, you took three months off for each child if you were able to finish within six months, well, which is pretty intense. Well, it was actually worse than that because I had C-sections. So oh. we're only allowed eight weeks, but I would have to stop two weeks before my C-section because of medical reasons. So I only had six weeks off for delivery after a Wow. It was brutal, you know. And who took care of the kids then when you were, I mean, you were, that was still, again, you're in my vicinity age-wise. I mean, mm-hmm. so the tr- tr- Christian gender roles, you know, right now it's, things are much more you know, evenly divided, but how, how, how did that get perceived even in your local church? Like here you were studying to be a doctor and now you have these kids in residency. Did your husband stay at home to help care for the kids? Did you, no. what you guys do? No, no, he didn't. Um, he still worked full-time as an engineer. So my mother-in-law, uh, gracefully came in to try to help us, but it that wow. a lot of different challenges in a new relationship and young parents. I would imagine that you would not necessarily recommend that. No. What a gift to have. <laughs> no, it was difficult. It was a blessing, but it was also uh, very difficult as we were establishing our roles and who we were as parents and all those things. It was a, definitely a challenging time. When did you have the, the aha moment that you were going to become a, really a, a science teacher? I mean, what, tell us more about Psy Experience. What is that? Well, I, I didn't have an aha moment. It, it was kind of my vision of being a pediatrician was as, as a black uh, woman, I wanted to work in the inner cities of Chicago and mm-hmm. with minority population and be a mentor and an encourager and all that. So I had it all planned and told God, OK, God, I'm going to get this medical degree and this is how I'm going to serve you. I'm mm-hmm. in a in a predominantly black population, Latino population, and I'm going to love on them and do that. What did God say? Uh, God laughed at me. Um, and, you know, it's funny. God's amazing. Every time I say under over my dead body, am I going to do such and such? Uh, it seems like I find myself doing those things. <laughs> <laughs> he has a way of doing that. I, I mean, and, and I know it sounds like you're like, what? That sounds mean. But it really ends up being in your best interest, right? I mean, now, you know, you look back and you think about. So so, so, so instead, you finished residency. Did you start practicing or did you? I, like, I did. Again, just- I started practicing at a federally qualified health center in the inner city of Chicago. And I, started, I guess I was, on, I was on staff at Northwestern and Children's with the uh, clinic that I was serving at. And it was predominantly Latino. So that was my first job. And then I went and got even crazier and worked in an emergency room at a busy ER uh, in the uh, suburbs, south suburbs over at Christ and um, really? in the pediatric ER at the time as a pediatrician. And Oh, man. Yeah, it was, it was awesome. I loved it. Um, but, you know, I, I never was prepared what was going to happen to my heart as a mom. And, uh, you know, how these guys, you know, I was so, you know, as an athlete and as a, as a doctor, so career driven, but those, those two little fellows, when they came in my life, it just turned my world upside down. And, um, I remember being in the ER doing a lot of psychiatric, uh, evals mm-hmm. when I would do those evals, I would start I started going on my own crusade, curious, you know, what would have a parent to be in such despair over their child that they would bring them to the ER and ask me to fix them in a few hours. Mm. So I had such compassion for those parents and I had my little uh, children at home and I would ask them, you know, what happened? When did things change for you? And, and I just, God started calling me home and I was like, what good is that? What did you lead into that a little bit more? I mean, did you feel like being home would protect your kids from certain outcomes? No, I know. I don't know if I came like that kind of mother bear kind of thing. But what it did say to me was what 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 was my value? What was most important to Mm -hmm. me? And, you know, we had a difficult time having kids. And now I have three children. um, And um, and God had blessed us with those. And it was something I didn't think would ever happen. So I started feeling like each time I was going to my shifts, I was leaving my kids at home in other people's care. And I, you know, the thing that resonated in my heart, what what good is if I'm the best doctor in the world, leave my family behind? 
And so was it, um, how was it? So did you go cold Turkey and quit the ER and, and started staying home or did you do it systematically hoping that you I, could I, maybe cut back? A I bit? tried systematically. So we, we were very intentional. So I went to, um, my, uh, the ER and because shifts change every month, I, I assume that's what happened with you. Yes. Um, I asked them, okay, I'm using daycare. I don't want to use daycare anymore. Just put me on shifts on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I do want to work wow. time during the week. So then my husband went to his work and said, I only will work Monday through Thursday. He went to a four-day week. So we tried that for a season where he was working Monday. That's brutal. And it was. It was brutal. We thought it was a great idea because then our children, we solved the child care issue because they were always in the care of an, one of us. But me and my husband never saw each other. And so it was like, that's not working either. Um, so it just felt like it was time to come home. And so we made the decision and uh, a lot of people thought we were crazy, um, that I was throwing away a, a great career without continuing to work and pursue it. And, um, you know, God was very gracious with allowing, I don't know what we did with the money, all the money <laughs> between the two salaries and we went down to one salary. And well, what, what this week, as we're recording, of course, there's been uh, some controversy in the evangelical world about uh, specifically women preachers. But but moving, but one of the conversational threads, if you dig into that a little bit, isn't simply just about women preachers, but also I think some of the tone is the woman's role. And so it's interesting because now you work with Focus on the Family, you partner with them, uh, and have done a lot of things there. And certainly James Dobson has written a lot about family and. And, and so what do you, I mean, in 2019, is there a specific way to manage the home or do you think it's truly a case-by-case -case basis? Is there a biblical mandate to how a home should be run? Well, it's funny. Uh, maybe I'll answer a question with a little bit of a, a story. And when we get to it, I started speaking at homeschool conventions a few years back, probably about 10 years ago. And one of the things that disturbed my spirit was when people would kind of, after I would speak, would come to me and say, oh, isn't it wonderful that you decided to go home and do your God-given, um, um, be in your God-given place of being a, a stay-at-home mom. Yeah. You know, so I was being celebrated for giving up a, a career with six-figure income to be where I was supposed to be to begin with. Yeah, And so, you know... My pride would kind of get in the way a little bit, but I would have to take a deep breath and say to them, if you're going to celebrate something that I've done like this or any woman, celebrate that they're doing the calling that God has put on their life. I would not recommend this for anybody and everyone. This is just the way God has wired and has called me to be obedient. And so I kind of frame it that way. So it's going to look quite different, you know, uh, how. A, a woman, whether they work outside the home or work inside the home, is that our hearts are torn toward God, and that's going to look differently. Amen. So and, and so, yeah. So you, but you, you, that's a big jump. So you went from okay, I'm not going to work in medicine because I want to be with my kids. But then you went to like sort of this hyper extreme of of being home, which is to homeschool, right? I mean, that is like you're super serious about. <laughs> yeah. Talk about that. How did you think and about that, doing that? That was another thing I said I would never do. One of the things that I had thought in that homeschool thing was was also pressing on my heart. I actually used to say, if I went home, I would eat my young. I mean, I, w I was so hardcore against homeschooling and thought it was quite fruity. Mm. But, you know, this dream was when we when our kids were using daycare full time, I thought once they got of school age, it was going to be easy. The bus would come pick them up at the door. Um, we'd push them out the door. The schools would take care of their educational needs and I could go and, and return to the workforce and, 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 and it'll be all good. Mm -hmm. um, when we, we sent them to school, there were so many needs that I saw my sons had. Um, they did well, but I didn't really feel like the schools expected them to excel yeah. and they didn't push. So they just kind of accepted whatever my sons got. I'm like, no guys, you're, you're, you're much better than that. You can do more. And so I got really crazy and radical and did some research on homeschooling and I just prayed about it and God opened the door. Um, my husband thought it was a little crazy, but he respected it and we agreed it. He was just worried that I would have to be, do the lion's share of the work as the homeschool mom. 
And so I jumped in, but it was pretty crazy because it wasn't something I knew that I wanted to do with my kids in the womb. Well, it's interesting because in some ways, yeah, you're like giving up your career, you're staying home, then you're homeschooling. You're sort of like, if you were to stereotype people and you'll laugh, you see where I'm going with this, but you would be Mm -hmm. like the anti-immunization person. (laughs) Like it's killing me, but like, you're still like, again, everything you're doing is so sort of like people just come to conclusions about the type of person that's doing you use essential oils. You know, you don't talk to anybody outside of the church. I mean, there, we have all of these weird, like sort of hyper conservative images of a woman who's done what, you know, the decisions that you've made, but really you're not like that, are you? I mean, first of all, what do you think yeah, of immunization? since we're talking about it, this would be a good time to just mention that. Well, I've, I've gotten, um, I, I tread lightly in the sense of, of course, I'm an allopathic physician, so I am I'm definitely pro-immunizations, but I don't think you can hold someone down and enforce an immunization with them against their, I, I, I try to be, I guess I more than pro-immunization, I'm pro-education. Mm. I'm pro-understanding the risks and the benefits and the choices they make, because I have issues with people on extremes, on either extremes of the argument. Mm. You know, people have done Google searches and now feel like they're authority on immunizations. And it is, you know, the immunizations are from, you know, the most negative, horrid thing you can do. Right. To those who, when I was practicing full time, would come into the office, throw me the immunization card and just ask me to shoot the kids up without even wanting to have a dialogue to talk about what we were doing with those vaccines. Well, I know with some pediatricians, I've even heard they won't receive a patient if they won't. Like there are pediatricians who are in the extreme that they won't accept a patient if the family won't immunize. So you basically develop these doctors. There's one or two in Chicago who only take care of patients who do not immunize because they have no other medical home, which you're right. It almost fe- like it almost removes any form of conversation about the topic. Um have you found in the homeschooling, so, so you started homeschooling and then you really started lecturing in homeschooling circles. Uh, have you found that there is a higher propensity, you know, among a certain type of, you know, like the conservative Christians that is there like that connection with like trying to be very health, you know, um, organic, you know, sort of protect. Oh, definitely. Right. Yeah. I, I haven't seen that, that strong connection. Well, funny thing is when I um, decided to leave full-time practice, I still continue to practice I've, I've kept my license active throughout the years. So I serve as a missionary doctor domestically in the area. Where do you go? Um, there's a clinic in the suburbs of Chicago that we all of our providers are um, uh, serve freely oh, wow. to a without insurance. So I've kind of kept my foot in there. That's pretty cool. But, um, you know, but the funny thing about immunizations in the homeschool world, there's only a few conventions that have allowed me to speak because they feel that the vaccine issue is too controversial. It is true, isn't it? But I mean, I, I would, it, it's, it's which is sort of, I mean, like I, I've had, I've, I want to do a whole show on, on it, but I felt a little bit nervous because I think it comes across as either you're, you're, you know, dogmatic and hateful about people who don't get it or the other way around. But, but I do believe in immunizations. I mean, I think as a pediatrician myself, I would say I see the benefits of it, but it's almost like, like we were talking to you and I even before the show, like it's almost, I find that most, it's funny. I, I find the bulk of doctors that I meet and that I talk with, yourself included, myself included, we're much more middle of the road, moderate, pragmatic than people give doctors credit for. I think the extremes mm-hmm. are the, if you're, you know, if you don't immunize, you're not going to be my patient. I think most doctors are sort of more well-rounded, even as it pertains to, do you homeschool or do you not? What is a woman's role? Should the woman preach or not? Like, I find that there's a steam in medicine. Do you, is there a reason, do you think? Do you think medicine, just all of the things that doctors and training see, like shapes us in a way where, like, I feel like there are only very few battles that are worth fighting to that degree. And I find most doctors that I know are in that same, like the bell curve, most of us fall in that same category. Would you agree or... Or do you see extremes among professionals who are caring for people well, who disagree with them? Well, I think that I have a good friend that I've uh, covered her clinic during her maternity leaves, has an awesome practice that is very um, friendly when it comes to talking and working with parents on the issue of immunizations and does not dismiss people because of their stance on immunizations, but she's really into education. And one of the struggles she's had as she's been dismissed 
from one of the insurance panels because of her um, uh, numbers of, of the numbers of, it's not a high enough number of those that are immunized in her practice. No joke. That's interesting. Replications. Yeah, there are some um, things that happen as a result if you don't keep the um, well, and you're, and you're a, But I mean, in fairness, you're a science person, right? And scientifically, I mean, I think the data is in favor of immunizations in terms of protecting um, uh, children from illness uh, in, in the world, really, not just in the United States. Yeah, I, I think we stand on the same thing. I think one of the things is that if we're really honest about in the United States, we have certain privileges and we have certain, um, we have such a great standard of health care. I mean, as far Correct. as overall, I mean, you can argue some other issues that come along there, but we have the luxury to uh, think through these issues. We have the luxury. Correct. We don't have a wide Correct. Correct. Uh, epidemic that's on our hand where kids are dying left and right. And you feel so, you know, I think part of the reason why this is such a controversial, because there is a little bit of a luxury to make a decision one way or the other here, because the, the, uh, the impact mm. or the danger doesn't seem so imminent. Correct. Yeah. First world problems. You are correct about that. You don't see that in the Syrian refugee camps that I work at. They all come in and ask, you know, where's the UN offices where we can get free immunizations. I mean, I agree. I think that is a really important point. Um, but, but ironically, you know, so, so, so even hearing your story, I mean, again, I think you're a, a black woman, you go on a football scholarship, you go into medical school, which there aren't that many black people in medical school. You could probably review some of that data from your own medical school graduating class. You've overcome a lot of sort of obstacles. You've found the Lord. You're, you're a Christian. You're a minority. Then you make an, a radical life career decision to leave you know, the traditional practice and be home. Then you become a homeschooling mom. And, and, and it's, it's just a fascinating path. But really, all of this sort of failed to... Uh, some of the tensions you saw at, the more you did work with the homeschooling community and specifically talk, transition us into sort of this uh, this focus that you've had in the most recent years on racial reconciliation within the local church specifically. That has been a difficult arena, the church, and understanding what it means to be Black in a white church. And can you talk a little bit about why that's been so hard and really how that you transitioned into that conversation? Well, this, that's a that's a heavy question, and I'm still processing this, to be honest. Um, when I entered the homeschool world, um, I I did it, you know, kind of organically, not intentional. And this is what God had called me. And the whole teaching and speaking again, that was not a career path I was looking to mm -hmm. do. But I love science and I love teaching. It just seemed like a natural niche and a need in the homeschool world that I just kind of fell into, and so. I started speaking and it started going national and international, just speaking and teaching about uh, science and God's creation. So doing dissections with 100, 200, 300 people, all with their own sheep brain. And I'm talking about the anatomy and physiology. And it just has been a, a great creative outlet for me. Mm. Um, but I think where things started to change for me is when my young, my uh, sons started looking like men. Um, yeah. You know, my biracial cute guys that almost look slightly Mexican. That's what people think they look like. But um, when they started to become um, men, you know, my oldest son is 6'8". Uh, and my other son is like 6'2", 6'3". When I started doing it, the world started to change for them. Wow. And it also changed heavily in the Christian circles that we ran in, uh, which is a whole story for another day. But there, were, there was a lot of entitlement, a lot of privilege, a lot of things that were racially motivated. And it was really difficult to be in spaces where people were saying the great Christian biblical things, mm. but their life and their actions as far as towards racial issues did not match up. And, and just that, that, somewhat blindness of, of those, um, um, encounters. And so I started speaking up a little bit on that and, uh, you know, that's kind of carried its own well, life. Yeah. I mean, let's dwell here for a little bit longer. So like, first of all, give me some examples of like how you would speak about, about it. You would just have a casual conversation because, because some of the, what the work that the church has 
try has been trying maybe to catch up on, I find even on social media, is sort of educating the church that there is a problem. I think a lot of people, especially white people, I'm white, I mean, a lot of white people don't think there's a problem, but there is. And every mm-hmm. black friend that I have who has who is part of a church will tell you that. I've, I've had conversations, even, you know, podcasts and things like that in the past. Uh, and I'm well, well aware of that. But but there is definitely a blindness, a blind spot, intentional or unintentional among, you know, white evangelicals in that. So you would just have like a one-on-one conversation and tell someone or how, how did you take opportunities to educate? Was it something that you faced in your local church or at national meetings? How did it come up and what pushback did you receive? I've I've faced it in in the local church, not in my current church, and I've faced it in private evangelical schools uh, and even in, you know, like the mainstream evangelical homeschool world. And um, there's such a huge pushback. There's such a fear that talking about race is a political and a divisive issue Um, in sharing my story with people and having, I mean, it would be like. I don't know. Let's just say someone's an amputee or has lost a limb and and they're telling about the experience and the struggles mm-hmm. and someone at that person telling them, well, that's not really how it is. That's a really good analogy. You're, you're really oversensitive. Let me explain why your reality is not true. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole idea of experiencing that, but even watching my husband's journey as a man has been an interesting thing. And I think when my son started looking like men, you know, the things that he were telling them were not the same things I was telling them. And in the sense of, hey, if if a policeman stops you, you keep both hands on the wheel, you're very respectful, things that he wouldn't even think of as a normal part of a conversation. So even being married 26 years, the two of us, um, we're still negotiating negotiating this race thing. Mm. And one of the things I was really powerful that he finally noticed a couple of years ago that it was difficult for him to see the race thing, even with being married uh, to me, was he said he always wants to see the best in people. He always wants to give the benefit of the doubt. So if someone acts behaviors is un, unbecoming, he wants to give them the benefit of doubt that that's not what they meant. But that's kind of changed a little bit. And I would love at some point that we get together and we share our story but it started to change because whether someone has ill intent or doesn't mean to uh, be discriminatory or biased, regardless of their intent, if the, if the behaviors are still the same, the destruction is the same on that individual whether that person's intent is well, and I, and I think sometimes the tendency and maybe I don't want to project too much of my thoughts, but I, I've used to think that, well, I'm not racist. Therefore, there must not be a race mm-hmm. problem. So why do they keep talking about it? Like, you know, because you sort of, you sort of think, well, everybody's got to be like me. And and you miss that. No, there is, well, if, if nothing else, what's happened in our country, and I think we've had a lot of different types of domestic terrorism, I think that almost you know, the, the, the couple of years ago, I think there was the back to back, you know, sort of stories with police and, 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 and wrongful arrests and, and sometimes the killings of, of young black men. And, and of course, most recently, uh, Atatiana, who is, uh, killed, uh, by a police officer. And mm-hmm. so, but, but there was a while where it quieted down. So people weren't talking about it as much. There were other, I guess, the elections, you know, there's so much stuff to talk about that's controversial, you know, but, but really, I mean, the fact that things like that are still happening in our country means that no, there is a problem. And I think as a church, I think we need to lead in at least recognizing that. And so I felt like in, in my conversations with, I know in the podcast, we've had Julia Newbell, Latoya Connors has been, you know, she's a friend of mine who is a business leader mm-hmm. who we've had some conversations here about that. Like, I feel like, in watching social media, like I've become more sensitive to a, there are bl- blind spots of racism in all of us and you catch them and uh, in yourself and you have to repent of them. But also I think like, just because you might think all in all, I'm sort of a, you know, I'm a culturally I, you know, I'm Lebanese. I travel around. I been to all cultures. I speak other languages. I myself, I'm not hundred percent white. Then I must, there must not be a problem. That is sort of a, I look back at myself and I think that was a bit ignorant of me to think that way. But I think it's a naive mistake. Do you, you know, in a, in a, in a way, like, I think this has been one of the advantages of the conversation is to, to open our eyes to the fact that we had naive assumptions. Would you agree with that? Or, I mean, do you have, like, do you feel like, like, like I, in some ways I feel like I've been well, edu- like I've, I'm learning, 
I would, I would humbly say I'm learning. Do you feel like there are others that you're coming across in the church where you see optimism and hope that, that there are some steps forward in the race discussion, or do you still feel an equal amount of sort of hitting your head against the wall? No, I, I'm really encouraged right now. Um, I, I think the biggest thing is it is naive to think that you don't harbor biases mm-hmm. and that you find spots. And I know that I, I have them myself, you know, and, and even harbored, it's not that I want Ireland, I want bad to happen to someone or I'm looking to that, but I, I have to be conscious of it. And I think that um, even between me and my husband, we don't always agree on race issues. Mm. As we love each other in deeply, we can't just step out of the race and like, well, I don't really want to think about this because, you know, it's really not my issue. Um, we're in it to win it. And so even though we have differences in opinions of this, but we love each other and know that each other have the best intent. And I think, um, you know, I don't, I never have desired to be anything that what God has created me to be at this point or what my is. It's beautiful. He's beautiful and I love him and that is who God created him to be. But I think that people, um, when they talk about race, they feel shame or feel like they're being called out on it. And just listening and being um, open to just listening to people's narratives and stories. How do you wish the church would change in this capacity? Do you you believe that? Like right now, I see still a lot of like all, you know, there's churches that are all black and all Mm -hmm. primarily white. Like you don't see as much of mixed churches. Do you think that's like, what are some simple means of, you know, changes that you see would help the church? Well, I've had like conversations with uh, pastors before at like previous church. And I I live in a predominantly white uh, community. And so the, when I discuss this at some circles, they say, well, well, we just reflect the community. We can't do anything about it. What's a white community? That's who we are and that's what we are. And so really that's that's the end of the discussion. And so, I mean, I use an example is there is such beauty and such wonder in having a diversity. I don't think a diversity in Christian, you know, thought as far as the gospel. The gospel is the gospel, Amen. whether you're black, blue, or anything like that. But there's a diversity of uh of individuals who come and who have a unique style of loving and doing it. And I'm actually part of a church that embraces that. And it's so refreshing because, you know, when I'm learning from my Asian American friends, they're, they're teaching me about that. And I feel blessed to learn about their faith traditions and to be a part of that. I think there has to be a level of intentionality. I had one person email me once. Um, I still remember what I had put on, on social media, an article. It, maybe it was a bit of a political article. I, I didn't mean to create havoc, but one of the emails that came across to, to my direct message was interesting. I'm curious what you think. This, this girl asked, and she apparently had listened to a lot of stuff online, like th- this argument that in, and I say a quote unquote argument, but like in, in the church, there should be no race discussion because we're all one in Christ, right? So almost like dismissive yeah. of, of the differences. But but in some ways, that's not good either, right? I mean, there are God did create us different, but equal. You know, like you know what I'm trying to say. Like, like we're are, oh, we are totally. all the same. Yes, our blood. You know, Jesus's blood is is flowing through us in Christ. So that, in a sense, it doesn't matter if you're black or white. But but one day in heaven, there will be uh, a choir of believers that the Bible describes in Revelation as black, yellow, red, and white. You know, and on and on and on. And mm-hmm. so, what are your thoughts about that? We, like, is it is it okay to still have differences in culture and in uh, in, in maybe racial traditions, or are these should these be basically washed out in Christ so that our our Christian culture supersedes any kind of Lebanese or Chinese or you know or or black culture? Like, what do you think about that? I, I think it's um, you know I've heard people tell me, well, I don't see race; I'm colorblind, and I and they're usually the only people that have said that are people of uh, Caucasian yeah. <laughs> uh, <true>. <laughs> a, a background, and I'm like. Well, can I, I like, can I ask you a question? When you're in an all white room, do you tell your children that we're colorblind? And they look at me like I'm crazy. So just the premise behind calling out colorblindness, you're seeing color and trying to denounce right. it. So it's not working. And I think it's the, the beauty of us is that God has created us beautiful. I mean, you we never talk about red flowers, green flowers, and yellow flowers. We, we enjoy the beauty of each of these right. things. And I, I think 
one of the important things is another thing I see in the churches and Lena, maybe you can help me with this because I'm struggling with this. You know, I'll go to an all white church and maybe I'm one of the few people, uh, if I go to all white church, they don't notice that there are no people of color. They don't notice that we're missing from the dialogue. Yeah. And so when when you're at an all white church, they'll they'll like, well, we don't have a race right, problem. Right, right, right. Uh, I think that happens at conferences. I think that happens a lot. And people have been calling up people on that. I mean, this is again, the, social media is a two edged sword, but one of the advantages I think is that people can't get away with this anymore on conference levels has been a big critique of like all white speakers and it's still very slow to change, but I think the speakers are becoming more sensitive to that. But I agree with you. I think it's a blind spot. I, here's what I noticed this Sunday. I went to a visit at church, with my sister, um, my, we had family in town and, and I, I remember at, at one point of the service, I looked up and it hit me. There was a lot of ethnic groups and I, and I thought, Oh, wow, this is awesome. This church has a lot of ethnic groups. And even that acknowledgement is a reminder or a sign that, in fact, many churches don't because most of the time you don't even think about it. So when you see it, you're like, you know what I'm saying? You're like, oh, this is unusual. Oh, yeah. It shouldn't be unusual, but it just felt so unusual. So I think your 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 point is well taken. And I, I think more and more, like, it must be hard. I mean, you had to be black in medical school and a woman in medical school. And now, you know, black in the church. I mean, those are a lot of things to overcome. How have you continued to find intimacy with the Lord and your hope not been like, I, there's a point where I might've been become so cynical or been like, you know, forget that. I'm not going to try anymore to, 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 you know, pursue whatever it is that God's called you. How have you maintained hope in this, in this um, journey? Well, I, I think we're all human. And I know that when I saw at the pit of the ugliness of racism, and I think the, the hardest thing is I've always grown up in white communities but the hard thing is when you see brothers and sisters in Christ look no different of, uh, about race and harboring those biases, the same as those who do not profess mm. a faith. For me, it was a crisis when I came in contact with that, where I was in predominantly evangelical circles who had this amazing blind strike spot and profess an incredible love for Christ, but yet harbor these biases and and it continues to carry out in their circles and things like that. I think that was a real crisis for me. Um, and so, um, and also um, getting to the point of maybe even hating, you know, like what's up with these yeah. white people? And then I ask my husband, what's up with you guys? And, and can you help me unpack this? And, and, and God's been so gracious as I'm moving through that. And he's like, Lena, I've put you here for this reason. I said, God, I wonder work in a black community, but here I am in like the Wheaton oh, area. Wow. And, yeah. and uh, you know, and what am I supposed to do here? Um, how am I supposed to stand on this issue? What, and so when you read the Bible, you know, I've read a lot of also like um, commentary on Twitter about like the black Jesus and the gospel being for blacks. I mean, yes. when you read the Bible, what filter do you see? First of all, Jesus in, but also God. Well, I, I think that gets to my point that I feel like, you know, God's calling me to yeah. seminary because I have a love serving people. I have a love dealing from an educational mind, body, mm. and spirit. And I really want to speak life and truth into people. And sometimes I feel like the the gospel that I've been shared many times has been uh, very culturally insensitive. And so I've been trying to mentally reconstruct, so to speak, the gospel in a sense of I've known in churches, you talk about Jesus being a Jew and, but all the cultural and the uh, racial and all the things that were happening in the Bible are so integral in the right. stories. So I feel like in my education, evangelical education, a lot of that was kind of whitewashed and um, you know, almost like Jesus was this white Jew and, you know, the cult, there were some cultural issues, but a lot of it has been, um, you know, put more from a white mm. perspective, if that makes any yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, so it's, it's, it's interesting. Like, like, I think about even the, the, yeah, what we bring to the word of God sometimes. Like, you know, I've, even though I grew up in Lebanon, I still hear the Christian language in English because my church was American growing up. Like, we had an American pastor. And so I had a hard time adjusting to 
you know, even it's funny, like, I think God speaks English. Like, like, is that our, is that conversation about, you know, the gospel being black and Jesus being black that I hear online? Is that more like, is it, is it just sort of the way that you, like we superimpose, like, you know, God, I think like, it's okay to think of God speaking English, but like, or, I mean, I don't understand that a lot. I guess I'm just asking for more uh, help understanding that. Uh, honestly, I think Jesus, I mean, technically speaking was Jewish looking I mean, he was born in, in the Middle East. Yes. So, um, you know, yeah, I mean, exactly. without further ado, I mean, I think probably a lot of us, if we were at the airport in 2001, we might've been a little bit nervous uh, around him, right? A little beard, a little long hair. And we might've felt a bit like, yeah. like he might've looked a little bit dangerous, but, 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 but when, but, but do you think the gospel itself is a message that connects more with black culture being like, you know, that's, that's sort of how I've read it. Or is it truly that he was like that, that, that he's black? Well, I don't know if I feel that way. I think you can, there's extremes, even with the yeah. racial discussion. I think the richness of the Bible, I just have a hunger for God's word. And the richness of the Bible, I don't think all of it's projected, depending on right. where you're going to church. And so for me, there's a kind of a new hunger because I would love to get into the historical things that were going on at times. When you talk about the story of the Good Samaritan, what did that literally right. look like? How does it transcend the messages of today where we have issues of race and culture? And so I think sometimes when people culturally appropriate right. what's right. going on with the Bible, you kind of miss what truly is going on and miss those connections to what we are struggling to with today. And so, so I'm thinking of that thing. I, you know, I'm not talking like, okay, you got Jesus, I got yeah, a black yeah, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's the, like which Jesus is going to win. And sometimes it, so the it truth gets a little bit, truth, yeah, sometimes know, it, the, the discussion can take on ridiculous dimensions, but, but that's whenever we step away from sort of the heart of the matter, which is love and, and being one in Christ, no matter your background or your race. And I think, I think there's no doubt that, that we all need improvement in that. What, 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 like, so now what for you? So you want to go back and get your, I mean, you, you want to be, you're going to seminary. Like, that's crazy. Yeah. So I'm applying to seminary and people are like, do you really need another degree? And I'm like, well, it, it, it's not that I need another degree, but it's definitely a calling on my heart. And whenever you're teaching others, regardless of the platform, there is a certain level of responsibility. And I, I take that responsibility very seriously. And, and with a commitment towards that. So this is something that I feel that, you know, sometimes churches don't train women, you know, even, you know, even as I'm doing a parachurch kind of ministry, I feel like I, I want to be equipped for this. And this may be one of the best ways for me to um, get that and, and kind some of ways training. That's sort of, I, I feel like the big thing that I catch listening to Lena Callantine's story is you've been super sensitive to following whatever it is that God has called you to do, regardless of how radical it seemed, and and really not culturally acceptable or expected in a sense. Like you've really sort of broken the laws, but you've really pursued what you felt is God's heart. And I, I think that is amazing. I, you know, that's what calling is, isn't it? You just keep leaning into the Lord. Yeah, it, it is. But you make the story sound much better than it's been. <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, you know, because I'm watching it from the big scope, you know, right? I mean, I'm looking at the big picture and you see it yeah. all come together and you're like, if you put yourself at any point, I can hear people going, well, you're crazy. Why are you doing this? And my gosh, why are you doing that? And, and you know, at every phase, it's like this extra step of, are you kidding me? But but what you're doing is following God's yeah. leading in your life and trying to obedient, to pursue obediently what it is that he's put before you, regardless of how hard it is, which I think is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. It, it is. But, you know, God puts certain roadblocks in our life. And when we, you know, I know that when I thought I was going a certain way and the roadblock comes up and I have to wait patiently on him and he's like, nope, you're not walking through that door. That one's locked. I'm going to open this one. And so as I get older and each time God graciously changes the path that I think I'm on, it's always way better. And I'm like, dude, why do I keep fighting? Let me just kind of relax with this and, and stop being this fish that's swimming against the stream and be in a stream with God and try to flow with him. So it, it's it's not easy, but I'm so thankful that he's he's so gracious as we, you know, you we listen to what he talks. Is there to. any specific but like place in the Bible that you've gone to over and over again, especially maybe talk to the woman as we come to the close of our conversation today, sort of who may feel like she's really living against the grain, whatever that looks like. 
It could be being in the workplace when everybody else is telling you not to be or the other way around. But where you just feel like, man, I'm not doing what everybody else in my culture is doing. How would you encourage them? Like, is there a place in scripture that has really meant a lot to you? I, I think one of the biggest one is uh, he that began a good work in me will be faithful mm-hmm. to complete it. I'm just leaning into, gosh, you know what? God has created each of us for a unique purpose and um, to trust him. And, and it's sometimes you know, it's really hard to be a truth teller and, and knowing that I need to lean in God, not to be on my own pride in my own, you know, nature. But when you have to say hard truths to the culture, um, it it doesn't always make you real popular on either side of the fence. And so, you know, just leaning into God and, and, and trusting him, it's made me, the struggles that I have is definitely made me more hungry for him. That's awesome. If I try to pursue uh, people and their pleasure or displeasure in me and let that determine whether I'm good or bad, it's, it's really unsatisfying. Right. And you can, you can apply does, that to every yeah. point of the discussion that we've had, be it the vaccines, be it the, um, the racial issues, be it just the traditional gender roles. I mean, are you living to please man or to please God? And, uh, and there exactly. is such freedom. And you hear it in your voice. There's a peace and a freedom to the life that you're living. Um, it just seems like your you have your identity rooted in in what Christ has done for you, and so uh, I uh, I commend that, and I'm grateful for you for coming on um, to tell us your story. I really love your story, Lena. How do people get to know you more and reach you? Is there a way for them to connect via your website or? Yeah, so I I have a website and um, it's uh, www.sciexperience.com. How do you spell that? S C I and S C I Experience. E-X-P-E-R-I-E-N-C-E.com. And uh, so it has some of the blogs that I've written, my book series, uh, God's Wondrous Machine for Kids, and um, just kind of a plethora of things I'm kind of involved in. But that's a great way if you want to get in contact with me, you can contact me That's awesome. Yeah. And if you are part of certainly a homeschooling community, I think you might even be familiar with Lena's work. Um, And if you listen to Focus on the Family, just a lot of different venues uh, any last minute thoughts as we um, end the conversation? Uh, uh, I want to, I hope that this conversation, my hope as we, and I'll give you a minute to think about any last minute thoughts, but my hope is that some questions have risen in the minds of the listeners as to the topics that we've talked about and that we would continue these conversations. Uh, that's part of the what reason why we do the podcast. Of course, we want to instigate hope, but also we want to uh, continue conversations that will lead to even more hope no matter what we're going through in different aspects of our lives. And I think so many of us think that we have little in common with the other person, but when you start hearing stories, we have indeed so much in common. Uh, any last minute thoughts for us, Lena? Oh, I just want to encourage listeners to be bold, to lean into God and know that you were created for such a time as this and lean into that purpose and trust mm-hmm. in Him. Amen. Well, that's a great word to end on. Guys, if you are uh, still here, thank you. And uh, you know that you can um, find out more about this podcast and uh, get resources for the ministry and much more at livingwithpower.org. If you use the contact page there, those emails come to me directly. So tell us uh, how you're doing. Tell us uh, where God is meeting you with his hope. And uh, above all else, know that Jesus is the hope of the world. And we can't wait to be with you again next week. Have a great day for now. 